This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 581 and we have Tony Havix joining us uh, back back on the IAQ Radio circuit. Looking forward to a great discussion on coronavirus, respiratory protection, disinfection, and testing. Tony has recently put out four papers, maybe more uh, by now. They keep coming out on these topics and uh, looking forward to talking about him. But before we do, let's thank our sponsors. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at cirscience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at iaqa.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at particlesplus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at healthyindoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report there was no correct answer last week's trivia question, which was to name rule number 229 in Hammurabi's Code. What the rule said was, if a builder builds a house for a man and does not make its construction firm, and the house which he has built collapses and causes death of the owner of the house, the builder shall be put to death. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, April 10th, 2020, has been sponsored by Ideas, a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IQ radio trivia question. What is an N95 FFR? Back to you, Joe. Okay, so today we have Tony Havix. Tony's a consultant out of Indianapolis, Indiana, and he's a professional engineer, certified industrial hygienist with over 30 years of experience. Uh, Tony's been a guest on the show before, and we're going to jump right into it. Welcome, Tony. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. You, you, you sent me some papers, and I was just like, wow, this is awesome stuff. The respiratory protection one was first. And I'd like to go in a little about respiratory protection in general. Um, when you state in your paper the efficiency below and above that most penetrable point is better because there are multiple capture mechanisms, interception, inertial impaction, diffusion, gravitational settling, electrostatic attraction, and each has its own capture efficiency. The sum of these produces a capture curve that has a shape like that in figure two, which is a a figure from Heinz in 1982. Talk to us a little bit about what you mean there. We've had misconception out there, especially with respect to HEPA filters. Yeah, so uh, if we take a look at that uh, first Heinz image, uh, we have multiple capture mechanisms in terms of um, how filters in general work. Uh, so, uh, uh, Pete, if you could get that first, uh, on, first slide it. up there for me. So, sure. uh, amongst these mechanisms, we have, uh, we have interception as the first, where a particle is moving along the flow streamline, touches a particular cross-section of a fiber, and sticks there and gets caught. We have a second mechanism, which is impaction. And uh, hit the next slide for me there, Pete. There we go. And the particle itself is heavy enough that it has enough momentum that it can't make it flow around the side. It runs into the fiber before it can, it can actually move with the flow and get around it. And that's, that's very similar to you driving your car around the corner. 
you know, as you go around the corner, you might end up on the other side in the post if you're uh, driving a little too fast and can't make the corner. And in this case, the particle can't make the corner and ends up hitting the, hitting the, hitting the, the fiber. And, it's, and it sticks onto the fiber. Uh, a third mechanism is, uh, is diffusion. And uh, this is what we typically think about as Brownian motion, uh, the random movement of a particle in, a, in, in motion and then eventually hits, um, hits the fiber and gets stuck to the fiber, uh, most often associated with very small particles. There's a last function, uh, gravity, which we all kind of understand what gravity is. It's, uh, it's one, of the, uh, one of these mechanisms. You can see that each of these mechanisms has different efficiencies at different particle sizes. So the collection efficiency of a filtration system is going to be the sum of all of them. You can see gravity can work on some of the bigger ones. The impaction works much more on the bigger ones. The interception has a little of both. And then the diffusion mechanism actually works on the much smaller particles. And so if you add those all up, you end up with a combination of those in terms of efficiency, which leaves you a weak point. So if we hit the next slide there, that weak point tends to be somewhere Typically, uh, for, for, for a lot of the filters, it's 0.1 to 0.3 micrometers in size. Now, that's not necessarily the case for an N95 respirator, but for your HEPA filters, this is typically the case. 0.1 to 0.4, somewhere in there, you have a most penetrating particle size. And that's where they like to try and uh, set the standard for what's going to happen, because you recognize that if you're smaller than that size or you're larger than that size, you're going to be more efficient. So that, that setting of a HEPA filter at 99.97% efficient at 0.3 micrometers is meant to reflect the fact that this is the most penetrating particle size. And if it works at this size, it's going to work at any size. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the, the coronavirus and, and the particular strain that's, that's going around right now. What, what is that virus size? Um, you know, the coronaviruses in general are going to range somewhere from, say, 20 to 160, 180 nanometers. Uh, the current uh, SARS-CoV-2 is somewhere around 80, 90 nanometers in diameter. Um, and, and that's actually, I guess that's um, a little facetious because when we talk about viruses, if you really want to call a virus a virus, a virus is, is actually the infected cell with the RNA or DNA material uh, associated with, with the viral component. The things that you're seeing as pictures of this coronavirus are actually a, a, a virion. It's the actual small little uh, virus particle itself that actually uh, contains both inside of it uh, the makeup for the, the, the RNA, uh, a protein structure, another protein structure, and then some, some pieces that may actually be extending off of it, uh, also of a different protein structure itself. So we're normally calling a virus is really a, a, a virion. It's a particle. Uh, and so those particles typically range in, in size somewhere from, like I said, 20 to 180 nanometers. And for the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's around 80 to 90 nanometers. And what is the size, uh, expected size of particles when you, we cough or sneeze? So I think most of, at least from what I understand now, most of the potential for infection is if you're around someone who coughs or sneezes. What, what size are those particles? Yeah, so those, those you know, you've got a range of sizes that come out and depends upon whether you're coughing or sneezing or not. Pete, if you could throw up slide 11 for me for a second, I'll give you kind of a uh, more of a graphic explanation of what you actually see in the way of particle sizes. Those particle sizes range, you know, to pretty small, but a lot of them tend to be very big. And, and, and remember that the virus probably isn't by itself. And even if it was by itself, it's probably going to aggregate very quickly with something else. But usually it's going to be in something that's a fluid, a mucus, membrane, saliva, something like that. So when it comes out, whether it comes out of the nose or whether it comes out of the mouth, it's probably going to be attached to uh, a liquid aerosol. And the aerosol size and the number of particles of those depends upon whether you're sneezing or you're coughing. You can see sneezes produce a higher number of particles uh, but in terms of the typical size range, they're, they're, they're fairly similar in terms of what the size ranges are. And they can range down into the submicron all the way up to, you know, uh, essentially a thousand uh, micrometers. Put that in perspective, think of your hair. Uh, when I had a little bit more hair, my hair was about a, about 100 mi micrometers in diameter. So that kind of puts it a, at a perspective of how big those particles are. Now, even with inside of those, it's, 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 it's got to understand that it's a viral particle with inside of 
a grouping of some type of liquid or some type of fluid that's that's maybe encapsulating it or holding it in there, maybe multiple viral particles in there. But that may not be the infectious aspect of it. Um, there is what we call platforming units, which are essentially the groupings of the virus, which actually form disease. And those typically get cultured out in terms of uh, how you assess whether or not a particular virus is actually infectious or not. And so from that standpoint, even if you have a bunch of viral particles, you may not actually have uh, very many platforming units. That'll range between somewhere between say 40 uh, to a thousand particles for every platforming unit. So uh, Pete, if you go and hit me the next slide here. So we start looking at a cough for instance, the total particles may be uh, fairly significant, maybe up a, a million at 10 micrometer in size. But in reality, the ones that are really viable and cause disease may be somewhere down around one to say uh, 50, something like that, depending upon uh, what is that ratio of uh, platforming units per particle. And that'll, that'll, that'll depend upon the actual type of virus it is. We don't know enough about this particular virus to say it's within one range or another, but looking at other co uh, co uh, coronaviruses and some other similar viruses, I would say it's gonna fit into the same range here. And so you would expect that for a cough. And if you hit the next slide, you expect that same thing for a sneeze in terms of a ratio of, of uh, 40 to 1,000. Now, there are some differences between how many um, viral components in general come from both the throat versus the nose. And it is interesting that some, some poor schlep had to, uh, had to have some uh, viruses actually put into their nose and they, 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 they checked them out to see how many got sneezed out, how many got swallowed, how many were in the throat viable after 30 minutes, an hour and the like. And the same thing for the nose and the tongue and the mouth and stuff. It's a pretty interesting little study. But so there are differences between what part of the uh, what part of the, uh, the nose, nose nasal pharyngeal area actually has the, the, the viable aspects to it. Uh, but that's, that's for another discussion some other time. Some poor graduate student had to do that, I guess, huh? I, I would suspect that's who got it, who got the short end of the stick. All right. So we, we've kind of set the table here with respect to the particle size. And, and, and if you could real quick, let's just also review with respect to a cough and a sneeze and talking how far do these particles on average travel during each of those activities, I guess you could call it? Yeah, so uh, go ahead and uh, Pete, go back to that uh, big sneeze. Yeah, so uh, you know, this, is, this is a photograph from 1942 from one of my old books in my library here. Uh, and we've been, doing, we've been doing work on this as well as things like fogging back in the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, to look at uh, uh, bacterial infection in, in schools and the like. And this happens to be a, a famous uh, high, high speed image. And you can see that you've easily got stuff a couple feet out. Now, most of the stuff will drop out within uh, say 80, 80 centimeters or something like that. Here we have a Schlieren imaging of a cough and you can see that the velocity quickly drops off. Uh, so most of the stuff is held within that first one meter distance and certainly by far within the next two meters. Now, you know, you got somebody who may be outside the, uh, the, the, you know, the typical range in terms of being able to sneeze or cough, but most of the stuff is going to be held with inside of that one to two meter range, which is a good reason why we have this three, six foot distancing rule is to mm -hmm. help keep us from inhaling something that may actually be uh, emitted or expired from somebody who is actually infected. Okay. And that, and that can also vary the, the distance it travels could vary by the type of environment you're in if you're outside on a windy day or if you're in an indoor environment with poor ventilation versus good ventilation is that accurate to say that is joe that's, that's a good point to make because um yeah the, the wind conditions the air movement in general will control some of that flow itself if we look overall at the statistics um pico and put up slide number 14 for me uh, yeah, you start looking at you know how how infectious, how much of a chance that you do actually have for uh, you know picking up some type of infection from a risk standpoint, and you look at the ratio drops off pretty quickly. You know once you get about six you know, six seven feet out, and so your highest risk is obviously close in. So you know if, if I uh, you know one of my Italian colleagues uh, last year was at a co conference with with her. And before she left, she immediately comes up and says goodbye. And for the Italians, they give you a kiss on both sides of the cheek. 
And so that's a little close in for, for, for contact, and that's going to give you a high opportunity for exchange of disease. On the other hand, I've got some friends who just, you know, they're friends, but they don't like good close contact. And so you're not going to see them any, any more than a long arm's length away. And so those kind of things will, will vary between people, but that opportunity for disease and, and, and transmission will also vary with regard to how far away from you are. Okay, so now let's, let's focus on respiratory protection. That was the, one of the papers you did, basically a, a meta-analysis of, of numerous papers on the topic. I don't know how you find the time to review all these, but uh, I don't know. How many papers were a part of that? Well, I have four papers out right now, and I have, a, I have a, about six in prep at various stages. So I've kind of been working my way through them as I go and getting distractions as I go along. Uh, but each one of them, I have the, the, the key aspects of them. So I've kind of been able to work on the other ones and relate them to the, the ones I've actually got finished. And these are all your review of the existing research out there, papers, et cetera, and then compiling that and coming up with a few, uh, a few observations, I guess, from each of them. Yeah, that, that'd be correct. We're looking at some, some what I would call key pieces of wisdom that come out of the science side. And I think a lot of stuff gets said about what you do, what you can do, what they think, what you know, might have been. And it's good to actually see where's, where's the science uh, support some of those statements, or maybe it doesn't support some of those statements. So in terms of the respiratory protection one, which was the first one I put out, because I thought it was important to kind of differentiate the effectiveness of N95 versus surgical masks goes through penetration characteristics, uh, just like we saw with the, the, the filtration characteristics. How well do the N95s and the surgical masks work in terms of protecting the wearer? So a lot of that was focused on the wearer. Now there's generally very good aspects about wearing a surgical mask or any mask of any type of protecting the person that's not infected uh, by containing the emissions from the person who is symptomatic or infected. Um, and from that standpoint, I wanted to make sure that the evidence was out there in terms of how efficient they were. And the surgical masks aren't particularly very efficient in terms of protecting the user against aerosols. They're very good against certain splashes and protecting the, the patient from, from the doctor, but they're not particularly very good at actually preventing um, aerosols from coming into the mask. On the other hand, N95s work very well at protecting on the aerosols, but they're, they're not actually rated for, for splash protection from, from that side of it. Now they're both uh, both useful in their own fashions for what they were designed, but for the N95 in particular, uh, it, it's a very useful face piece. It's a filtering face piece. I don't really like to call it a respirator. I like to call it a filtering face piece. And it has, a, has an efficiency, a minimum of 95%. So we talked about that most penetrating particle. And that most penetrating particle for N95s tends to be, somewhere in the range of 40 to 90 nanometers. So 0.04 to 0.09 micrometers in size as opposed to 0.1 to 0.3 for your typical HEPA filters. And so they test the N95s at that uh, penetration aspect with small little salt particles and they check the efficiency of the, of the N95 filtering face piece. But there's a big assumption in there. And that big assumption is that the face piece is fitting properly and that's the big issue with these, with these, these N95s. They've got to fit properly. The, the filtering material is really good. Filtering material for even these ones out of China is probably pretty good. The problem is, is it's got to fit. And if it doesn't fit, your leakage, particularly around the bridge of the nose or any other part of the face structure, you know, I have clean shaven face today. I was going to mention that, Tony. Yeah, as, as, opposed, <laughs> as opposed to my uh, uh, pre-cut uh, goatee and beard, which were cut just so I could fit my, uh, my half-face respirators. I have a North, I have an MSA, I have, uh, I have an AO, I have a couple other respirators that are half-face. I can get all of them to fit if I have a small little goatee and a beard just inside of the, where, the, where the face piece contacts on the half face. I can't do that with an N95. That comes all the way around my face and comes down where my beard was. So I was doing some testing with N95s. I had to shave them off because I couldn't get a good fit. So my fit factor, which is a nice little way of saying the ratio of the outside concentration to the inside concentration, and the mask was pretty poor with my beard on. So I cut the beard off and then I was getting 150, 200 fit factor 
for my for my in this case my 3M uh, respirator. Now there's some there's some N95s that I can't get to fit. I've tried a, a couple Chinese KN95s and their faces are not like my faces, and so they don't fit the same way. And so I can't get a good fit on those respirators. They they need to have good tight straps to hold it tightly against the face piece. So from that standpoint, the N95s only function as well as your fit. Tony, on, on an N95, I noticed a bit of a difference. John, can you pull that chart back up again from that paper? You had all the you had all those different types of respirators uh, listed there with with um, different efficiencies and fit uh, efficiencies. I guess let's first talk about what they mean by an efficiency here, Tony. That's a uh, a fit factor. Well, go ahead. You talk about that. Yeah, so the efficiency is how many particles does it actually capture in terms of how efficient is it at capturing those particular particles that come through. Some of these that I put in that paper are actual poly, you know, latex little spheres that I have in the other room, polystyrene spheres that I have in the other room. They're solid. Some of these are liquid. They're dioptyl phthalate um, or some other liquid uh, aerosol that they put in there. And some of these are actual agents. They're uh, Bacillus subtilis was pretty common. Uh, Micrococcus luteus is another agent that's been used pretty often. And you can test them against various size agents and look and see how efficient are they at actually capturing what gets put on the outside of the mask versus what actually gets carried through inside of the mask. And for the surgical mask, you'll see a pretty wide variety depending upon what it is and whose mask it is. I will say that in the more recent 10 years, that a lot of the surgical masks have gotten a lot better. They're probably in the range of 95% efficient for the good mm -hmm. surgical mask. So if there's a 3M surgical mask out there, it typically has a blue uh, splash cover type setup for it. But this actually is pretty good. But for the most part, if you just say surgical mask, I'm not gonna trust you. Now, if you well, slide down pa past the surgical mask, as you were just talking about, Joe, what are some of these? Yeah, you get down into the t-shirt, the, the, uh, uh, the, the handkerchief, those don't work very well. Um, you can't get a good seal with them. The layers aren't there to protect the person from aerosols coming in in terms of the size that have been tested. But if you look at the N95 filtering face piece, you notice that they do pretty well, even against bacteriophage. For those of you who don't know what a bacteriophage is, uh, you have viruses that infect the bacteria. And they, they will typically then do the extraction of that to use as an agent to try and test what goes through and what may be living, well, not necessarily living, what may be replicatable as the virus goes through. So you can look at the physical efficiency of, of a viral component as well as the viability of a viral component by using a, a phage material. Tony, let me ask you a quick question. I hear about N95s that are, um, is it FDA approved for, for hospital use versus construction use N95? What's the difference? So FDA has their own process of, of um, uh, determining what's, what, what is efficient and what can be used for those, which is not the same as what I'm typically used to as an industrial hygienist. Those, uh, those N95s for the FDA are not geared towards the same testing protocol as would NIOSH. And so NIOSH has a very well-defined protocol. Uh, they revised it back in 97 uh, to come up with some uh, different types of respirator uh, filters. The filtering face pieces was part of that, which was our what we call N95s. And they're called N95s because they're not oil-proof versus a R100, a P100, which would be oil-resistant or oil-proof. The 95 means it's got to be at least 95% efficient at point uh, the, the testing range of, of the very small particles. Uh, 99 means it's 99%, 100. They just rounded up from 99.97 to give you 100. But uh, each one of those has a particular testing protocol, and the, the NIOSH protocol is pretty harsh. Um, so the, the field applicability of an N95 will probably be much better than the testing protocol that you might come out with NIOSH. So NIOSH has a protocol where you take um, either dioptyl phthalate for some of, the, uh, for some of it, or you take uh, sodium chloride salt uh, particles that you create. Uh, and I do the same salt particles for testing respirators in it with a port account where you actually aerosolize them and get them into the air. And they, they look at the penetration of those particles, but in the case of the NIOSH test versus me doing a port account or, or you wearing one out in the field, they actually neutralize the particles. And when you neutralize the particles, you get much higher penetration efficiency. And, and that change in penetration efficiency can be a pretty dramatic effect 
uh, on the respirator. This slide right here. So let me let me share this right here, and y'all should be able to uh, quickly okay, see. Got I've got this little PowerPoint up, um, and I, and I have here uh, out of a particular uh, N95 testing, you can see that. Uh, if you've got these neutralized particles, which, in, which are in the blue diamonds being shown here, uh, you have you know, two, up to 2% penetration after they've been neutralized. Whereas if you've even got a negative or positive charge on them, very little is getting through on these very small 80 nanometer particles. And so from that standpoint, as you, as you, as you look at that most penetrating point uh, on the particle size there, depending upon whether you've got charge, whether you've got uh, active flow or passive flow, that charge makes a difference. Uh, you can go ahead and take it back for me, um, John. You can go ahead and take back control. Um, I'll stop sharing. Um, and, and from that standpoint, you know, most of the stuff has electrolytic effects. They have a static charge built onto the filter itself. And those charge effects will draw a lot of particles in and capture them out in the real world, but they're not gonna capture them in the NIOSH test because you've intentionally neutralized the particles to make it a worst case scenario. So nice. even if it's 95 in the test scheme in NIOSH, and you know, testing with 200 milligrams worth of, of particles, uh, you're probably gonna get better efficiency out in the field, which is of course what we want. That all presupposes you've got a good face piece, face filtering face piece seal. And that's the important part is, is, the, is the face piece seal. And Tony, um, can you talk about that face piece seal with an N95? How do you do your seal check? Not the fit test, but the seal check with your N95 respirator. So let's pretend I brought my N95 to my office because I have a whole bunch of them in my home office right now running tests on. Let's pretend it's on my face. The typical way to check that is to put your hands over top of the face piece, cup your hands and close off as much and kind of breathe out and feel that resistance on the inside of the face piece. And does it leak around particularly here or maybe down around here or bottom of the chin? If it's leaking under a little bit of pressure, you don't have a good seal. And that's called a user seal check, a positive user seal check. Then you put your hands over top of it again and you try and suck in and you see again, do you feel any other leakage coming through various areas? Now, when you're doing the positive one, the positive user seal check, you may actually see, if you wear glasses like I do, steaming up and around the glasses. That's a good indication you've got leakage around the bridge of the nose. Uh, okay. But you can actually feel some of this movement around the excess portion of the face around the sides of it. That's a user seal check. Say your hands aren't so big, you're not getting a good, uh, a good ability to actually cover that up. I'll take a Ziploc plastic bag put it over the front and use that to help give me my positive and my negative seal through the respirator itself to try and feel around the, the, the outside of the face piece to make sure I've got a good seal. And that's, that's very important every time you put the respirator on. Let's, let's ask, I want to ask another question. What level of respiratory protection would you require on a project you're in charge of where they're cleaning a building that has had cases of COVID-19? I would just require an N95, uh, N95. As, as my type of respiratory protection. I will tell you that from a standpoint of reusability, uh, ability to uh, reclean and reuse that material, I would prefer a half-face respirator. The reason being is that a half-face um, can be cleaned much more easier, can be reused much more easier, and uh, it gives you a little extra benefited uh, level of protection that you don't necessarily have with an N95, particularly if you've got other things uh, floating around in the air. Um, the other thing is if I'm, using, if I'm using particular agents that I have a concern over, I may be using a uh, chemical cartridge along with a, uh, a hard filter cartridge. So I may be using a, a charcoal filter, which would be the black filter. And then I may be using a, uh, either a P100 or a, uh, uh, a thin layer of uh, N95 over the top of that, uh, just to give me that, that particle penetration prevention as well as the chemical aspects of it, depending upon what I'm using. And why, why don't they use uh, a reusable half-face more often in healthcare? I, I, I just don't understand that since they're running low on respirators, um, the reusable ones are easier to clean. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? Um. So from the standpoint of, of why they're not using them, um, 
a lot of it has to deal with what we call human factors. Uh, you know, it's much easier to put on an N95. It's you. It's much easier to talk with an N95. It's much easier to feel comfortable with an N95. The the intrusion of a half face respirator is not good for a lot of people, and they just don't like that feeling. Um, however, there's 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 also the benefit of if I do get splash on it, I can immediately just throw it away and grab another one. So there is some benefit to to a uh, to having a N95 filtering face piece in that it's uh, quickly disposable, assuming you've got supplies of it. Uh, and then the, the the fact that it's much more comfortable to wear for most people. You also don't necessarily have to have the level of uh, respiratory protection uh, program that you would with a half face respirator. You still have to do uh, you know, your user seal checks and officially you have to do your fit, fit test with regard to an N95, but they're a little bit easier than doing a, 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 a typical uh, full-blown with a, with a half-face respirator or full-face respirator. I also noticed, I think it was in your paper about the use of face shields and that they, they actually help in a couple of ways. One, in my experiences with fogging and, and the use of safety glasses or goggles, they fog up if you've got an N95 on. Uh, face shield be a little less likely, but they also apparently provide some protection. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I, I went into a couple of studies in the, uh, in the paper itself that show that yeah, that face shield aspect uh, prevents that direct aerosol blow into the face and then being breathed in. So you're going to see the impact onto the face shield, or you're going to see air movement around the face shield and, and slow it down enough to where you are not breathing in as much as you might normally breathe in. Now, it's not a perfect seal, but it, obviously, but it does do a reasonable job of limiting the amount of larger size aerosols, which obviously are going to have more plaque forming units and more viral material or more bacterial material if you're looking at bacteria. So it's very effective at, at reducing that, uh, that aspect of it. And, and, and frankly, if you, know, if you want to use a, a face shield with an N95, you're actually going to do much better. Okay. I, I just don't know why we don't use those more often. Let's, let's take a little break here. We're going to go to halftime. John, I'm going to do the short version of the, of the uh, sponsors, by the way. We couldn't do the show free like we do every week without our sponsors. We're going to thank our sponsors, and then Cliff has a, an unfortunate announcement after that. IAU Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at cirscience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at iaqa.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at particlesplus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at healthyindoors.com. Robert Bob Earl Bonwell, age 76, of Indianapolis, passed away on Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. Bob longed to be an entrepreneur. He always said he wanted to own his own business and have a shop to work in and fix things. He made those dreams a reality when he started Advantage Marketing in 1984. Bob built Advantage Marketing the old-fashioned way, handshake deals, hard work, grit, and determination. Bob led the company through transition from a small carpet cleaning firm to a full-service cleaning and restoration supply house known today as Advantage Experts in Clean with locations in Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. Bob always focused on ensuring the highest level of customer service and care, treating every customer as if they were part of his family. Bob's motto was, you can't outperform your knowledge. Bob believed strongly in self-improvement and education. 
driving him to work with industry colleagues in Purdue University to help develop a degree program in disaster restoration. Some of Bob's closest industry friends and colleagues were saddened to hear of his passing and shared their remembrances. Claude Blackburn, founder of Dry's Products, reflects by saying, Bob acted with integrity, fair play, sharing, and kindness. Bob was an industry leader, an industry pioneer, always looking for a better way. It always seemed to me that Bob found the right balance between integrity, humanity, and good business practices. Dr. Randy Rapp of Purdue School of Construction Management, who worked with Bob over the years as professor of the Disaster Restoration Program, said, Bob's infectious enthusiasm, love of people, and the restoration industry, and unflagging generosity for worthy causes were an honorable life force we knew and respected. But his memory can encourage all of us to live up to the love of family and others and the restoration industry. Pete Kinsigli, known in the industry as the Restoration Global Watchdog, remembers Bob as a one-of-a-kind guy who's like the industry may, may never see again. Kinsigli goes on to say, Bob Bonwell had a big heart and was a man of his word. He loved the industry, his customers, and many industry friends. Bob's work with Purdue is an unparalleled commitment to help raise the restoration bar for posterity and as a legacy that will benefit generations of restorers to come. I remember Bob as a mensch. According to Leo Rostin, author of The Joys of Yiddish, a mensch is someone to admire and emulate, someone of noble character. The key to being a real mensch is nothing less than character, rectitude, dignity, a sense of what is right, responsible, and decorous. The term is used as a high compliment, implying the rarity and value of that individual's qualities. The spirit that helped build Advantage as a family business and Bob's legacy will be carried on by Bob's daughter, Kristen, the president of Advantage, and his son, Mike Senior Product Specialist. Bob is also survived by his loving wife, Suzanne, a sister, second daughter, and five grandchildren. Industry gifts in memory of Bob can be made to the Robert Bonwell Scholarship Endowment for Restoration and Reconstruction and Construction Management Technology at Purdue University. A complete eulogy and links will be found in this week's blog. Thank you for your attention. Okay, so we're back with the second half with Tony Havix. Tony, let, let me ask you, um, I've got a text from a listener, and I, it's right where we wanted to go anyway, this whole issue with decontamination. Um, primarily of N95 respirators. And um, I, I, the question is, at what temperature, Fahrenheit, and duration can heat be used to decontaminate an N95? I didn't notice heat as one of the uh, options in the paper that you wrote. And I also didn't notice the recently approved, I think it is FDA-approved uh, method using, um, I think it's a hydrogen peroxide, uh, atomized hydrogen peroxide or something along those lines, but you'll correct me. Yeah, so the, uh, the hydrogen peroxide vapor used vapor. is uh, just, just out of Duke. Um, that actually was some work done by Battelle back in 2016, and they kind of somewhat commercialized it, made it available now. Works really, really, really well. Uh, they've been getting some fabulous results of up to uh, at least 20 reuses of an N95 mm -hmm. during the process. They also put spores in uh, as a tr as a testing mechanism to make sure the spores are uh, disinfected for every batch that they run. Uh, the difficulty with with doing uh, a lot of the reuse and cleaning aspect is that whatever you use to clean it can damage the respirator. So you're typically looking at two parts of that. You're in the filtering face piece, uh, the polypropylene is the part that they worry about the most from the from the filtering face piece portion, and then the straps themselves. And it's really the straps because, again, if you don't have a good seal and the straps aren't tight enough, you're not going to have a fit that's worthwhile anyway. And so if that fit isn't worthwhile, it's going to be probably less than a 10, 20 fit factor as opposed to a needed 100 fit factor to be able to pass a, a, a official fit test. Uh, so from that standpoint, you can look at a variety of different mechanisms. Um, I didn't use I didn't put dry heat in there. Uh, hasn't been shown to be uh, effective uh, wet heat. 60, 65 degrees Celsius, 80, 85% relative humidity, kind of like a steam process, which has been used over in Taiwan as well for 30 minutes. Uh, we'll do a cleaning job on it. Um, again, you have to check whether or not the, the straps are working well after the usage for that. 
Uh, I have a Clorox process, a 0.06, 0.1% uh, bleach solution for 10 minutes after doing a cleaning in something like a, a, more, a more mild version of Alkanox uh, cleaning first. Uh, and then you dry it out. Uh, both of those you dry in a nice uh, clean place. Uh, there's also a UV process that's in the back of my paper in the appendices uh, and specifying a particular um, amount of energy you need to put onto the surface of the N95 to get it to work. And that, that comes out of some uh, military testing as well as some other published literature. And so you'd have to take a meter like I have in the other room here, check that you actually have a certain amount of watts per centimeter squared uh, in terms of the amount of energy actually getting to the surface and the length of time uh, specified to be able to get uh, enough uh, killing power essentially to make sure that that UV is useful. The best would be actually the hydrogen peroxide vapor. I've seen uh, Duke's data. I've talked with uh, email and back and forth behind the scenes. They do some fabulous work. They've done, done some testing. Uh, they haven't done a lot of industrial size, uh, industrial type N95s. Their work is mostly with medical, which has a, uh, a splash piece over the N95, which makes it a little bit more different, a little bit more resistant to multiple uh, reuses. In general, however, let's say, let's say you didn't even have to clean it. How many times would you reuse your N95 anyway? Uh, there's a good right. study that they looked at N95 reuse and somewhere between six and 10 uh, uh, reuses or the six and 10 uses. So it'd be five to 11 reuses um, or five to, uh, five to nine reuses. You would end up having uh, not enough uh, seal. You'd start losing the efficiency of the respirator, uh, the filtering face piece in general. So my recommendations, which are in my paper, uh, five reuses and then stop both from the standpoint of you may not be able to prove that uh, you're getting good cleaning capacity, but then from the other side, you may actually be having an inefficiency at being able to um, make sure the respirator is, is doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is protecting with a good fit factor. The downside about some of these fit testing uh, mechanisms, and I uh, probably haven't talked about that very much, is um, for the port account, or for the, for the N95 and the filtering face pieces, you got to destroy the face piece to do the test. Mm -hmm. And so you literally put a hole through it with the, and, and put a probe to pull air from the inside of the filtering face piece and compare it to the outside of the face piece, which means you're destroying one. Now, what I've done at my house, as I've been trying to stay at home a little bit, is I've been testing a series of, uh, of uh, Clorox bleach ones, and I put holes in them. And I had, to, had them set up test to a port account with an N95 adapter onto it just to see how well they work. And they will drop down in fit factor. There's no doubt. They will lose their capacity. Part of that is strap. Part of that uh, changes probably to the fiber structure itself. What I can tell you is that people want to try use uh, ethanol or isopropyl alcohol. Probably not a good thing to use on those fibers. It appears to cause some damaging effects and rapidly drops the efficiency of the of the uh, of the filtering phase piece down. Okay, you anticipated one of the text questions there, so we're gonna uh, hope Luke if that didn't or yeah, Lucas if that didn't answer your question, send us another one. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about disinfection in general. I know you didn't, I think you're working on a paper on disinfection of surfaces and, and you know, uh, rooms and so on and so forth. Um, how important is that clean surface before applying a disinfectant? I mean, you go into a, an office building and, and you've got, you know, so many surfaces that haven't been cleaned in forever under the desks, you know, up high on the walls, the ceiling and so forth. And you've got people going in and fogging disinfectants in there. How important is the pre-cleaning of those surfaces? So if you haven't cleaned the surface, your disinfectant is, uh, is a crapshoot. Um, you know, the whole purpose of using a disinfectant is you clean first, then you disinfect. You have to allow for dwell time as well. So just because, you, you know, I will recommend that you clean with the disinfectant, but that's not because it's doing disinfection. It's because it's giving a little bit of extra added ability for anything that you're actually picking up, that you're actually helping reduce anything that might get re-aerosolized at the time. So the disinfection ability isn't as good and certainly may not even be useful if you haven't cleaned the surface to begin with. So cleaning the surfaces first, then you disinfect. And, and then you want to actually check and see whether or not you, that process has worked uh, effectively or not. Um, there are some disinfectants that have been checked uh, for with regard to uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, ethanol, uh, Clorox is another one. Um, and so the two of those actually work pretty well. Surprisingly enough, um, 
within uh, one to three minutes, you'll actually have uh, uh, kill ratios well over three logs. And when I talk about three logs, I'm talking about uh, three log, nor log uh, from going from say a thousand down to a hundred, down to 10, down to one would be three log, log movements. So going from a thousand to a hundred is one log, going from a thousand to 10 is two log, going from a thousand to one would be three log. And you can quickly have within one to three minutes a three log decrement or decrease in the number of viable organisms, whether that in particular for, for SARS-CoV uh, that actually has been tested. And so, but that only works if you've got the surface relatively clean where you don't have organic material, where you don't have uh, mucus covering over something, something else to be able to protect it. And there's a similar actually parallel for uh, things associated with Legionella. Uh, you know, Legionella sits inside of uh, some protozoa and you can actually have it inside of the protozoa and the protozoal test can actually protect it. So if you don't physically clean the surface, uh, your, your disinfectant is not going to work as well and may not work at all. What about verifying the dwell time and, and the coverage rates? You know, some of our restoration contractors are concerned about, you know, did I get the proper dwell time? Did I get the proper coverage rate? You know, they've got 50, 100 guys out in the field doing this type of work. How do you how do you suggest they verify that? Uh, you know, that, that's a t that is a tough question because uh, if you really want to verify that, then you'd have to put coupons out and throw some coupons down and actually test them in place, both from a standpoint of coverage as well as uh, as well as how well you get survivability on a particular surface. Now, from a coverage standpoint, that's something I actually have in my my list of things to do is a few experimentations with coupons of different types of materials, stainless steel, uh, uh, polycarbonate and the like, and look and see because coverage is a big deal. That, that coverage, both from a standpoint of how much mass you put out in say a, a, a fogging machine, um, as well as what the surface tension is. So if the surface tension isn't low enough, you're just gonna get a bunch of little dots that may not interconnect and coverage the space that you need to be able to get the effect that you need. Uh, if the surface tension can be broken, you can spread it over a wider area. And that'll depend upon what you're applying and what you're applying it with and what the, what the carrier agent is and the like. Uh, and that needs to be tested um, by manufacturers. So we're heavily relying off the manufacturers to, to make sure that we've got the proper coverage. Now, if you've got the proper coverage, you've got the proper dwell time, you're letting it sit for the proper dwell time. Remember that a lot of those were designed for bacteria. Uh, and from a bacterial standpoint, uh, bacteria are hardier than viruses for the most part, with the exception of say some enteric viruses. So if you've got it for the bacteria, you expect to have that same amount of coverage and proper dwell time for a virus, provided you've cleaned properly. If you haven't cleaned properly, uh, I think all bets are off. Okay, let's take Cliff. I want to make sure you get a chance to jump in here on this disinfection. Any any thoughts or follow ups? I think that you know the, what I what I'm seeing is that most people do not understand that envelope viruses are the easiest organisms to kill. And they need to stop and kind of repeat that to themselves because, you know, in the industry, we're seeing people running around with bazookas and, I mean, the most expensive technology, you know, that was developed from the, by the government to deal with anthrax and bioterrorism and, and so on and so forth. And I think that you covered it very, very well, Tony. I mean, you know, it's about cleaning and, uh, you know, soap and water will eliminate this or deactivated, so yeah, I, I think let, that- let, let's, let's do some comparison purposes in terms of survivability, just as a general rule. You, know, you talked about anthrax, uh, the agent is Bacillus anthracis. Uh, bacillus anthracis, Bacillus subtilis, Bacillus magitarium, they're all spore forms. They, they, they all form spores which are much more resistant to being uh, disinfected um, or sanitized in some form or fashion. So when they use these as surrogates, they're very good surrogates because they're extra conservative in terms of how they apply. And so from that standpoint, with, when it comes to viruses, viruses are much more uh, uh, able to be uh, broken apart from, from a standpoint, both chemically as well as, um, as well as physically. And so a lot of these things will easily take care of them. Now, um, John, if, if you would go ahead and throw up my piece, of, if you got the piece that I had on uh, on survivability that I put out, uh, summary of a chart on survivability. It was one of those four papers you it's posted. one of those four papers. And, and it brings to mind what Cliff had just talked about here with regard to 
Well, let's talk about if I don't even disinfect it, what's it going to do? How well is it going to survive? And from the standpoint, that's the paper there. So go ahead and go ahead and uh, pop that uh, pop that up. And if you go to the chart that's in here, so what I did is I put together a series of 40 tests that have been done on various surfaces with these particular uh, coronaviruses. Uh, the bottom one's an enteric virus, the TGEF. Top one's a human coronavirus, uh, common cold. MERS, which is a Mediterranean one, which went around a few years ago. Uh, and then you've got a, a mouse uh, hepatitis virus, common, pretty res uh, fairly resistant virus. The enteric one and the mouse one were chosen for testing because uh, they are pretty resistant uh, compared to most other viruses. There's a, a SARS virus that was basically the, from, the, from the SARS back in 2003. And then there's SARS-CoV-2, which is the, the current COVID-19 one that's in red. You know, all those little red dots in there, the survivability is, is well under five days. Um, and then if you look at the SARS, that was essentially the equivalent of what was around in 2003, 2004, um, those all have uh, persistence of, of nine days or less. And most of them are five days with the exception of, you know, one particular uh, non-specified plastic. And so most of these viruses, even if you just let them go, by themselves without any disinfectant, any, anything whatsoever, they're not gonna last particularly very long. Some of the quotes about 28 days and, and lasting that long, if you put it at four degrees Celsius at 85% relative humidity, you might be able to get there, but I don't know of many places that indoors, they're gonna be four degrees Celsius and 85% relative humidity. And so from a practical standpoint, I hit the 10 day mark of not having used my building and why do I need to clean? Well, I need to clean because I should do that anyway for other things, not because of this particular virus. And so from that standpoint, you know, when I, I'm designing some cleaning protocols, you know, if the building has been sitting around unused for 10 days, 14 days, you know, four weeks, there is no reason to clean for COVID-19. You know, Tony, let's, let's talk a little bit about verification of the cleaning. Um, one of my contractor friends asked, uh, he, he sent a couple questions. One was, what do you recommend for post-cleaning verification? Is it visual, ATP? I know you did the paper on ATP and micrometer. And you and I have been emailing back and forth and that you have some labs now that are actually doing um, PCR, I believe it is, to, to test for the virus. Can you just give us your general thoughts on that topic? Yeah, so I, I just pulled up a part of my draft piece I'm writing on the cleaning verification. I'm looking down and I've created four different categories for cleaning. Uh, the top one, essentially number one being basically a hospital with you know, four, four more cases. The next one being split into a medical facility with one to three cases or a high, high probability of multiple cases at a commercial manufacturing facility. Class three would be uh, you have a sentinel case, just one. In a, in a commercial building or manufacturing facility, or you have a high probability of somebody being symptomatic having walked through the place like a grocery store. And then number four, no cases. That could be commercial business, a manufacturing facility, whatever. And, and in terms of those categories for verification, I have, some, I have some different cleaning protocols with regard to that, which we can perhaps talk about at a different point because we're not gonna have enough time. Um, on the inspection side, it's, it's you know, one, two, and three, all visual. But for the cases one and two, where you have uh, multiple cases uh, or you usually have sentinel cases, I think you should have visual during the cleaning and post-cleaning. I think it's important to make sure that you see that the cleaning is being done properly. Uh, and I, for the testing purposes, we'll typically, uh, for those two cases, we'll have an option A, which will be uh, ATP and then a tracer material. So we may put down a fluorescent tracer. Uh, I have glow germ, I have some other tracers. We'll throw them down at particular spots and see whether those were actually cleaned. Go back with the UV light and see whether they were cleaned. Um, contractors can get smart um, and, and, and realize that you're using UV light as, as a good tool. And so I actually have an infrared tracer that I use in case I think the contractor's figuring out that I'm using a UV light tracer and I can put an infrared tracer on and go with an infrared camera and see where I put my tracer at and see if it's still there. So that'd be option A would be ATP and a tracer material. I, option B would be a micrometer and tracer material, very similar, different, different substances in terms of how they're evaluating, which I can talk about in a second. And then in the uh, case of having multiple cases, uh, you know, like four cases or more, 
I would probably would go in with uh, with a PCR based surface swab for looking at SARS-CoV-2 in particular specifically. The number of samples would be dependent upon where they're at, how they are, and I'd probably be doing some composite samples as part of that process. And I've got some statistical reasons for why I choose the number of samples that I do. For category two, it would be supplemental to do PCR, and I wouldn't even require it for category three or category four. It'd be kind of a, a ill-spent money unless you're trying to prove it was there to begin with, in which case I wouldn't be doing it for cleaning. I'd be trying to look for, is it there to begin with, and so I can claim that I have da property damage to my building. Yeah, you, you and I talked about that. It was something I hadn't thought about, Tony, is some building owners are looking for IEPs, uh, indoor environmental professionals, industrial hygienists to go out and verify that they did have um, a contamination with the virus because it may help them with insurance claims, et cetera. I don't know uh, how much you've dealt with insurance companies and whether they're actually covering these claims, but it may also be insurance with respect to uh, continuation of business insurance. Yeah, so on, on, the, on the business interruption side, I, I've, been, I've been closely dealing with several attorneys on the idea of trying to make sure that you've got that proof. And I've laid out a uh, Hill's criteria of causation aspects working through the process. And one of those things would be, can you actually show that you had SARS-CoV-2 in your building? Uh, it's not going to be to the effect where you're actually culturing it out and showing that it actually was viable. But at least you could, you could say that I actually had it there. And if you have it there, that presence makes a, may, may go a long way to showing that you actually had some type of physical impact with regard to the building. And so we're thinking that the, the, the PCR method is the way to go. Now recognize that you know, the PCR is very similar to, in this case, the DNA testing. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference is we're actually looking for RNA as opposed to DNA. And you're looking at, for an RNA sequence to, to, to pin down this particular, um, uh, this particular virus. Uh, you can have, not in this case, because it's as far as uh, CDC is concerned, they've actually checked for uh, human COVID, uh, human covirus, um, coronavirus. They've checked for the other SAR virus uh, that was out in 2003 and a few others that might interfere with the testing. It's been pretty well selective in terms of being able to make sure that when you do this PCR testing, you actually do have the SARS-CoV-2 with the way it's being done. There's limitations in terms of detectability, but if it's on the surface, and it's dead, you're still going to get a positive. So if you've got a lot of material that's on there, it may not be alive. It doesn't tell you viability. It tells you presence. It's presence absence. It's not a, is it viable? Is it non-viable? Uh, and, uh, and I probably don't have time to go into it either, but there's some recent uh, data coming out in terms of aerosolist aspects of uh, one facility that they did air samples. They had a bunch of you know, PCR positives on the air samples, and they went to culture them, and none of them cultured. Hey, John, let's go to the roundup real quick. John, Tony, can you stick around for five more minutes? Sure, I can. Great. All right, uh, let's go to Cliff. Cliff, any final thoughts, questions for Tony? I think maybe uh, I'll, I'll ask the one that the listener asked. Uh, can Tony share the lab who can provide SARS-CoV-2 PCR testing? Uh, can I can I share that now? I will I will get you a post for that. There's actually two labs that I know of that are actually doing it, okay. and so I will put that together and uh, and have that because I don't want them to be swamped with somebody using the process. The reason I haven't put that out previously is there's a lot of people who are just going to want to use it to use it, and that's not a good use of of the method. You need to have a reason why you're using it. You need to know what answers you're going to give, whatever results you get before mm -hmm. you ever take the samples. You need to have a good program on why you're taking the number of samples you're taking. So if you're not willing to do that, don't be using the method and don't be trying to do the testing and protocol in that fashion. But I will go ahead and put something together and we can post that up there tomorrow because I want to give the lab a little heads up that they may be getting a, okay. a few phone calls okay. uh, no for this service. Quite understandable, Tony. And maybe we could have the, the listener contact you by email too. Uh, that way, give you a little more time in a day. Um, Pete Consigli, the Restoration Global Watchdog. Thoughts, questions? Well, Tony, uh, great job with the interview. A lot of information. I mean, we have 40 caller, live callers today, which is something. Um, we haven't had that number in a while, so I, I guess obviously they're interested in the topic. Um, I mean, the whole country is. 
Um, we even got Howard from last week of the Moisture Mob that called in. So, Joe, it looks like we get, we got, we're getting the Moisture Mob sucked in. They're calling in even on non-moisture issues. I love it. Um, you know, Tony, the, the thing um, – and, and it's too much to cover in one show because it, it was a broad thing between disinfection and, and uh, respirator. Uh, you know, the chat log just went crazy and wild. A lot of good questions, a lot of interaction. But the thing that um, I'm most care about is this uh, verification, the labs, this type of stuff. You know, <clears throat> some of us on this call, you know, who are on the call and a bunch of us are friends, you know, we've been circulating over the last few weeks. A lot of these kind of, I don't know, Marty King used to call it puffery. You know, the, these marketing hype emails that are going out from the industry from either remediation contractors, um, you know, companies that have some product to sell, uh, even some of the labs, uh, some industrial hygiene firms. I mean, uh, the list goes on and on, uh, you know, and it's hard to separate, uh, well, the, the fly shit from the pepper is the way my, my old uncle used to talk about it. How do you separate all that? And, you know, just comment and talk about where the industry is at, because I, I you know, how should people deal with this stuff, Tony? Because I think the big thing that most people are concerned with is if they're going to do whatever kind of cleaning it is, the clients want to know, well, how do we know you did the job? And um, I, I think that's big. I think the jury's still out. Some of your work is great. But, you know, anything that you can comment at, anything that Cliff could put into the blog for that, I think will be very helpful. But, um, you know, that, that's, that's the bone I got in my teeth is to get to the bottom of that. Let me help a little with that, Pete, because, Tony, one of the things I've been seeing is is labs saying that in, in lieu of not being able to do PCR for for the virus, that maybe you should do bacteria, and um, that, that if they do a total bacteria, that uh, that may be a good uh, surrogate for whether or not you cleaned well enough and disinfected well enough. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I actually have to agree that we use surrogates, and in my paper, I kind of explained some of the surrogate uses, including some work that was done on uh, M2 phage, which is a virus. Um, and so it's been done and used. They put M2 phage in there. They looked at the cleaning process, and the ATP worked really well. It was actually a good surrogate. So you're assuming that the material is there to begin with. Um, and so you have to assume that you're going to have bacteria at least, maybe not fungus as much, but you're going to have at least bacteria, particularly human bacteria, uh, skin bacteria and the like. So you can't just be selectively choosing what kind of bacteria you got. You need to be pretty broad based to be able to capture and make use of that. And the ATP tests that are out there do a pretty good job of that, as does my mycometer. Not, no plugs for mycometer. I, you can talk about that inside of my paper and see what the differences are and the limitations of both of them are. Uh, but from a standpoint of making use of it, ATP... Uh, micrometer, some type of surrogate testing to give you an idea. Have you really cleaned the surface? Because if you've cleaned the bacteria uh, properly, then you shouldn't have any viral material there. So it's a good surrogate test in terms of showing that you've actually done the work that you expect to do. Uh, the PCR is just going one more step in terms of being more specific about it. I think you're actually better off, technically speaking, making sure you clean the bulk of the biomaterial, which is which would be an ATP or, or a micrometer type test. So that's actually probably more at risk than, than essentially the, the, uh, uh, the COVID, uh, COVID-2 because you're having to go from surface onto the hand transfer, transfer either into the nose to intranasally uh, or to the mouth and then assume that somehow you're going to get an uh, inspiration and get it into the nose and cause disease. So most of the stuff is really geared towards aerosol. So the surfaces aren't really as, as risky as we think they are unless you're going to re-aerosolize them in some fashion. Uh, so I think we've actually got some safety factor stuff to work with in terms of the surfaces. But from a cleaning perspective, um, you know, I, I, I work very well with contractors. As long as they listen to what I say, they don't always have to do what I say, but I want them to listen and understand what their choices they're making and how they present it to the client. And if they make a good presentation, an honest presentation to the client, what the options are and let them make a good choice, I'm okay with them doing several things. But I did have a, an architect who was, was my boss back in the 80s at Southern Engineering. And he said, you know, I came into the job after working for two other companies. He goes, I need to tell you something. He goes, Tony, you need to remember three things in this, in this business. Um, I said, one, never trust a contractor. I said, okay. He said, two, never trust a contractor. I said, okay, I got it. He says, three, refer to rule number one. And so from that standpoint, I've always been 
very hesitant to trust anybody because when the going gets tough, it, it becomes very tough to draw those lines. So, uh, and we're there in the same place as consultants. Where do we draw the line? How do we actually work within the means that we've got? I've got a whole region of gray that I'm willing to work in. There's my black and there's my white, but there's a whole region of gray depending upon how risk averse somebody is as a client. And I can support a pretty wide range. Tony, any final thoughts, uh, anything we missed that you'd like to make sure you add before we sign off? Um, yeah, for the N95s and for the respiratory protection, uh, make sure that you actually know how to use it and you're, you're properly trained in, in whatever respiratory protection that you've got. Because if you're not using it right, it's 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 not working. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, in, in terms of what else I'd like to say, clean, clean first. Cleaning is more important than disinfecting. Fantastic, Tony. Thank you. And when you're done with the other papers, we'd love to get you back, talk a little more on this topic. Maybe we'll have a panel of people to kind of you know mull over some of these thoughts and uh, you know keep keep helping our contractor base and uh, our, our consultants out there that listen and building owners and managers. They've all got a tough job to do right now. And uh, uh, we're going to here to help as much as we can. Also, we, when you mentioned resuspension of, of particles, I think there's a lot of that when you're doing cleaning. So I think the cleaning people need to be cautious of that uh, or conscious of that and, and cautious while they're doing this training cleaning and, uh, Make sure that they're properly trained, like you said, and using their PPE properly. Anyway, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Tony Havocs. Great show. Very much appreciated. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. At the controls, John, you got to have faith. The Restoration Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday. Oh, by the way, the final edition of the Moisture Mob is next Friday. Roland Vieira will be with us. We've been alternating between, um, you know, industry-related shows and the, and coverage of the uh, coronavirus. So next week, we're going back to the Moisture Mob on the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.